Hello, and welcome to Untold Wealth, where we are chatting about wealth told. I'm one of your hosts, Vince. And I am Devin. And today, we're going to be breaking down a quite dramatically titled Stock Picks That Have Destroyed Lives. And to give a bit of a breakdown, great title, (laughs) of what this show is about, really, for those of you who are new listeners, uh, Devin and I kind of brainstorm some topics and think about interesting economics, finance, or uh, that kind of realm of commerce. And we think up some titles and then do our own research. And then we present these topics to each other, inform, fascinate, and generally have a good time chatting about economics and finance, as is our academic backgrounds. And also just aim to inform you, the listeners, and just have a great time overall. Sound about right? Yes, yes, but let's emphasize very limited academic backgrounds. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> listen, we have our bachelor's degrees. We're interested in the topics, but we are by no means professionals. Um, definitely more of an entertainment passion project because we know the woes of listening to very, well, not even high-level economics podcasts, but moderate-level um, economics podcasts yes. and feeling very out the loop. So this brings a very more baseline, realistic, boots-on-the-ground experience in, a, in an interesting and informative manner that we do like to present it as such. Um, but that's kind of where we're going with it. Absolutely. Like for, there's that kind of saying when you watch like YouTube videos about financial investing tips. It's like, this is not financial advice. This isn't financial advice, if any advice, really. So (laughs) yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Take it with a grain of salt. Um, But yeah, we decided today to chat about uh, stock picks and possibly other uh, trading decisions that have led to a lot of losses, whether that be prominent losses in profit or revenue or likely not lives, but I, I, I don't know what you're going to be chatting about today. So we'll keep that door open. But yeah, on my side, I mean, that's going to be a consistent trend, right? In any giant um, investment uh, scandal or, or bombshell, I mean, there's always lives that are ruined, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Um, so even if we don't have concrete examples of lives that are ruined, you know there's people that are not uh, not feeling great when X happens. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. And I'll be starting us off before we pass it over to David. And today I'll be chatting about how the actions of primarily one man led to a loss of about $6.2 billion, led to a bank being questioned by the SEC, which is the Securities and Exchange Commission, and fines to that very same bank, totaling about $920 million. Today, I'm going to be chatting about the man known as the London Whale. Excited? I've, I've never heard of the London Whale. I'm so excited. I'm at the edge of my seats. Please go on. Please go on. That's great. Um... I was actually <laughs> concerned that we would both choose the same topic for this because I was just shot up when I was like researching. I was like, oh, this might be something Devin also probably found. But this story needs a little bit of context. So bear with me while I kind of set the scene. Describe the events and then kind of break down what happened, or at least how it happened. We're in 2012, after the 2008 financial crisis, 
the economy is slowly recovering from a time of financial turmoil. Banks are just about getting back on their feet and are experiencing more deposits than they have had for quite a while. And one of these banks, JP Morgan Chase & Co, has actually had a quite a tidy sum of money deposited throughout these years, about $1.1 trillion. And to give some background, banks usually make their money by taking the money that you've deposited, then giving you a small amount uh, of interest to keep you, uh, as an incentive to keep you there. And then they take that money and then lend it out to other people at a high interest rate. And then the difference between those two figures is profit to the banks. They also make their money in other ways. And at this time, JP Morgan Chase had only lent about 700 billion out of that 1.1 trillion to other people or other corporations. But they had also invested in a variety of securities with the rest of their money. But as all economists know, or everyone really knows, investment comes with a risk. And banks try really hard to mitigate this risk. They usually do this by hedging their bets, uh, trying to ensure that any, if any outcome occurs, their losses will be minimized. Or better yet, they'll profit just in another way. And the hedging of their securities and loans, uh, one of the departments that did this was JP Morgan Chase's Synthetic Credit Portfolio Department, which was run by the bank's internal chief investment office. This was set up in 2007 to protect the bank from credit scenarios like the financial crisis, and it actually made a tidy sum of money, about $51 billion of the European default crisis. They mainly used credit default swaps, which to take a step back here, is a very fancy way of saying that they bought and traded insurance on loans made by other corporate banks. And their own bets on corporate loans to ensure that, or they basically made bets that the European banks would default on their own loans. And they succeeded in it. And they made $51 billion off of it. About a year later, we're talking about uh, December of that same year, 2011, the economy began to look more positive. And they were kind of met with a peculiar situation. They still had this portfolio of positions with these credit default swaps. But since the economy was looking up and they had bet that it would not be so great, they had a portfolio of about $500 million of unrealized losses that they were trying to figure out what to do with. And I'll, I'll prompt you, Devon. If, if you were facing this scenario, what would you do with this situation? Well, if you were a fraudster, you try sell it. <laughs> you try sell it to the next sucker and say, hey, listen, that's not a hot steaming pile of garbage. Um, <laughs> is that what ended up happening? Not really. But the the, oh. the the scum factor of what you just said, I think, kind of translate over, translates okay. over. So they, okay. they had this like estimate of $500 million uh, dollar losses that they would likely gain if they sold off these things. They would also lose out on the premiums and costs um, as well as just kind of doing some market research. 
they also realized that there might be a chance that they could get out of it if they did a speculative trade, which would land them about $400 million in profit instead of loss. And that's where one of the main characters of our story comes in. His name is Bruno Ixil. Uh, he's a French trader, and he'd been working with J.P. Morgan Chase uh, for quite a while. He, he seemed to be quite a, an efficient man, um, and basically he had kind of speculated that a profit could be turned from this. So he and the rest of the department decided to reduce the risk by implementing a, a hedging strategy, a new one, using a different portfolio of options. They decided like, okay, if we tweak the numbers here and implement this model, calculate some new risks and limits, we could actually turn this around. But they were horribly wrong. Their new model didn't match what the rest of the market, what the rest of the banks expected was going to happen for the credit default swap market. And so this department in JP Morgan Chase began to hemorrhage losses. And then in response to this, once they started to realize that this was spiraling downhill, Bruno went rogue. He thought to defend their positions by rapidly expanding their portfolio with massive trades. So he basically thought, okay, this is going at a loss. Our hedging strategy didn't work. What better to do than to just buy more and hedge more and hope it works out? <laughs> and because of these massive trades in the credit default swap market, Bruno became known as the London whale to the other traders in this market because he was making trades so big that he was influencing everyone else's positions. Not only is this... So like, go ahead. So like people were jumping on the bandwagon with what he was doing. He was kind of market making. Essentially. It's kind of like the equivalent of like a more contemporary scenario when like Elon Musk tweets and suddenly like... About Tesla, Dogecoin, yeah. Yeah, yeah and Dogecoin shoots up. Bruno was kind of doing that with not just tweeting, but like making trades of mass amounts. So much so that like the market reacted and everyone else's positions would fall or rise because of it. And this is a crazy position to be in, not only because you're a single trader that's affecting what the rest of the market is doing, but you've also invested so heavily into this one market that you can't exit it without massively impacting the rest. And the following year, the first financial, uh, the first quarter financial results came out. And this office, this chief investment office, had began to accumulate losses unheard of in the departments. And by June or so, they had figured it was about $5.8 billion. And by the end of that year, it was $6.2 billion. Not only did Bruno get fired at that point, but the CEO of the company, of J.P. Morgan Chase & Bank, had to basically be questioned by the SEC on how this could have happened, as well as being fined about $920 million because of it. But before we get into the why, how crazy is that? How does that sound to you? Well, like, that's firstly, it's crazy that someone can buy something 
and immediately make it, you know, turn everyone's eyes towards it. I think everyone's probably bought a stock before and like, uh, you know, seen that, you know, the green line and be like, I'm part of that little uptick, like, you know, right. Yes. Indescribably small, like that little small uptick, you know, that that's me. Um, so what you're describing is someone that he could make an uptick, you know, everyone's eyes got to something, right? It so was crazy. How, so was it, I'm just trying to wrap my head around it because that's it's very complex. I mean, more than more than I'm attributing to attributing to it, even though I don't understand it at all. Um, most likely, how how did that end up going so wrong? Okay, so he's la- he's got this s- set of assets that are predicted to be 500 million in losses. Correct. Yes. He says if we play around with uh, the models and how we uh, and how we hedge it. Best case scenario is a 400 million profit, okay? Mm-hmm. But when they did that, the calculations didn't line up with how the market was responding or how that model, that new model they had done, predicted the market. Exactly. Right? So his strategy was, okay, this market is in decline. I'm going to buy so much of this market, get so many eyes on it, that this market goes up in value. Was that really what he was doing? More or less. Big oversimplification. That's you're on the right track. And and it's a great question. How could this have happened? Like the CEO that was questioned by the SEC and had to be fined, he he is quoted to saying later on as let me be direct. The London Whale was the stupidest and most embarrassing situation I have ever been a part of. Um and yeah, you know, how could this have happened? And, and there's a couple of reasons. Uh, one of the reasons was the fact that, like, the question might arise, like, how could they have not stopped this before, like, this mass trading happened? And the truth was, this is an internal department. It wasn't a client-facing unit of the bank. And mm. so their portfolios, which would look crazy to anyone who'd actually take the time to investigate them, didn't receive as much scrutiny as other portfolios might have. There were no kind of limits or stringent oversights, no meetings that kind of like allow departments to like cross communicate with each other. And it's because of this lack of oversight that like people like Bruno, who was kind of one of the lead risk valuation heads, could kind of be left unchecked and go wild. The other situation is the fact that like, um, the actual model that they implemented, the one that kind of allowed them to see a possible way for them to spin that $500 million of losses, that was made by a guy named Patrick Hagen, who was a quantitative individual. But he had never before built or implemented the specific model that they would need to actually like calculate the risks and the like the mitigation of a synthetic credit portfolio. So even like though there was months of research put into the model, there were a few like issues that came to light that seemed crazy to think about. Like for example, you had to some of these like programs were put into Excel spreadsheets, and there were parts of it where you had to man manually update certain factors and. So if you had left it out, it would mess up the entire model. 
there were coding errors and calculations for like hazard rates that were completely wrong. And also like one of the benchmark things that they were basing it off of used the wrong model compared to what they were supposed to be using. So the end okay, result okay. was just but is, crazy. But is, in your opinion, is that incompetence, gross negligence, or like fraud, or a combination? Like, I think... Because it sounds like a group that is being blissfully ignorant and like purposefully, you know, rose-tinted glasses, right? Looking at this model instead of scrutinizing it. Or do you think they totally went with the intention of, of making this model or was it just like i don't know like how do you describe that what, what would your opinion be i, I have two takes here because bruno excel who, who kind of like is known as this london whale who was also in charge of uh, hiring this guy patrick to actually make this model um is at the center of all of this he kind of has his fingers yeah, not only making the massive amount, mass amount of trades in the market, but also the preliminary steps to getting that to getting to that point. And so there's two sides of me. One of them is just like this is corporate incompetence, more than likely. I think if you left a, a department unchecked, they probably would cut corners like this anyway. Um, and faced with like losses that were slowly mounting over time like this took about maybe a couple of months eight to ten months to really come into fruition so given that amount of time like you can kind of see maybe the stress was also a factor the other part of me maybe the more kind of like looking for a story part of me looks to someone like bruno who previously had like a great track record uh like during the financial crisis he was labeled as like this very competent trader like the maybe scandalous side of me kind of things like okay maybe he had this reputation to uphold and so when faced with the fact that like his department would be accruing losses and losses and losses with an opportunity to change that around and make a profit he took it yeah it's probably also like um it's like confirmation bias. You know, he's done exactly. well up until this point. He's in a bigger position than he's ever had. These could be bigger gains than he's ever had. Um, you know, he doesn't think he can lose. He hasn't lost before. Am I going to lose again? No. Like, oh, I, I'm Bruno, dude. I'm, I'm, I'm a head honcho. Like, look, they're calling me the London Whale. <laughs> I can imagine him being on a few like financial like messaging boards or something like that saying wow look at this guy as an anonymous tipper like oh the, the london whale look he's purchased <laughs> he's purchased x number of credit default swaps from <laughs> whoever exactly could, yeah it sounds like the kind of guy who, who would do that um. <laughs> just the the points where like he he saw that the model wasn't working and and things were kind of like spiraling out of control at that point this model they had worked on for months was flawed they had these losses accruing just that moment i can imagine where bruno's just like he like tracks his knuckles you know gets on like the laptop sees the screens around so let's make some trades baby and then just proceeds to go on a bend like throwing out millions and millions in credit default swaps 
just that's if that had happened i I would love to see that yeah and it's also like i think so much of this stuff gets overlooked because it's so inaccessible to the average joe on the street absolutely even to us who we're talking about millions and billions we probably have a better conception about how much money that is and it's probably still not a great conception okay to an average Joe on the street, when he's hearing all these monies, like all this money changing hands and being swapped, they're like, they don't say, oh, it's X amount of money. They say, it's a lot of money, yes. right? Oh, that's that's Wall Street. That's just a lot of money. That's JP Morgan Chase. That's just a lot of money. And that would go for reporters in, you know, in that field as well. Maybe less so in that field, but just reporters in general, people on the street. So like when these reports come up, you know, it's so hard to have a human perspective towards such large quantities of money. And then one year it happens, the next year it's only like a percentage difference in how much is invested because it went from 50 million to 500 million, all right, for yes. example. Okay, so if that first year is the only year that's not scrutinized, okay, but for example, the second and third year went from 500 million to 550 million, you'd be like, oh, but from... From second year until the third year, it was only 50 million. And then, you know, they conveniently don't find out that the first year was, you know, this 450 million difference, you know. Like, things like that. It's hard to keep track of. It really is. The world of money is ever-changing. Big numbers, you know. There's inflation as well. It's like there's there's a lot of complexity to it. So things like that get overlooked very, very easily. Um, As well, like, yeah, some point that I didn't quite mention, but I, I... In my research, like when JP Morgan, they did have some eyes on this, like within the intro department, and those people decide to cover it up more or less. Like there were a lot of regulations broken here, of like protocols that were not followed, which led to that fine. And to be honest, like I think my like couple of takeaways, uh, first of all, like that. billion loss, which, as you said, it's like a a substantial number, even if you can't quantify it much. Mm -hmm. Like, compared to, like, what they make in deposits, that's like a penny. Or not not a penny, but like, it's not that big of a loss, as crazy as as it is to say. Mm. Like, we're talking about trillions. Exactly. Like, Like, that's a loss that they can afford to make. Um, The other thing that, like, I kind of found interesting about the situation is that like this happened using fitted default swaps, which a couple of years earlier was the same reason that like the financial crisis <laughs> happened. So you think kind of history repeats itself, but I didn't expect it to happen so quickly after the fact. Ironic. All right. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I agree with you, Vince. That is, that is spectacular. Uh, degree of oversight i would say fraud i mean listen fuck that i would say fraud sorry i didn't mean to say french but uh, it, it really is you know you could definitely see head honchos in these companies like you know they just generally don't care it's pocket change to them um and people's lives do get affected unfortunately absolutely um, but all right thank you very much i that was very interesting i will not forget the london whale um <laughs> appreciate it yeah something i'd never heard of before so thanks for bringing it to light so i was doing some research as well 
Um, and I mean, you go through, you go through the normal suspects. You go through Enron. You go through mm-hmm. the crypto crash. You go through the Great Depression. You see all these, you know, great, you know, gross, um, big, terrible investments and losses in markets and and things like that. And nothing quite spiked my interest, um, except something that's quite close to my heart at the moment, mm-hmm. um, and that has been this very recent um, esports recession. And, oh. uh, and yes, and obviously Vince knows, I, I work in esports for a South African uh, esports uh, organization. So I'm very in the know about esports. I mean, I watch various esports. I, I enjoy it greatly. It's one of my biggest passions in life. Um, but very, well, not very recently, I would say in the last six months, maybe eight months, end of 2022 I'm definitely leading into 2023 and, and currently esports is kind of failing um, and it's quite counterintuitive and let me explain why all right so esports has kind of grown from the occasional tournament thrown um, in a in a LAN maybe in like Sweden or something somebody's <laughs> playing Starcraft to honestly 600 or 500 to 600 like million annual viewers of a variety of different esports titles okay and the number is only increasing all right now this inc- right now it's sitting at about 500 550 million but for the past 6 years it has been an 8% flat increase you know and compounding that is good. those are extremely large numbers like that's there's a clear upward trend of people actively viewing and being interested in esports and that kind of thing you know you look at that as an emerging market from a venture capitalist point of view or investment firms anyone trying to diversify their portfolios and they say oh my word there are lots of eyes on this there are lots of sponsors that are going to be interested in it let me get a slice of the pie (laughs) right okay and there's different slices in different industries there's the publishers that make the game there are the athletes that play the game but there's the organizations that sign the athletes and then there's the tournament organizers um that organize the tournaments you know chat with the sponsors all that kind of thing right so there's different players in it um but i think the one that really caught the attention because it's really where most of the eyes are not necessarily on but but where the fans are most interested in mm-hmm. is the organizations themselves. So it would be very natural for a venture capitalist to say, hey, and for those of you who don't know what esports is, I apologize, but these are some well-known organizations. TSM, Cloud9, FaZe Clan, T1, these are all organizations with the best players in the industry for their respective games. Look at the merchandise they have, the models they contract, the players they have on salary, like I want a piece of this pie. Look so, at how many fans they have online. These are like the Manchester City and Chelsea exactly. of esports. Exactly. That that's perfectly analogous. Exactly. They're the ones that are signing the professional players. They're the ones that are saying, "Hey, tournament organizers, look, my teams are the my my players are the best. Invite me to your tournaments." They get into rankings and different esports titles and they establish themselves in different games, right? And fans love that. They support teams fervently, much like Manchester United and stuff. 
at this stage multiple stadiums have been packed for like grand finals and world, world finals and things of that kind of nature so i mean on, it's on the up and up it all looks good um and it has been good um except for the last six years pretty much since esports has been you know hit the mainstream i would say from 2015 onwards esports really hit the mainstream and during covid it had a giant uptick in terms of viewership every esports organization pretty much said hey you know we don't make a profit but look at these numbers look at the eyes on us look at our fans look at our internal valuation you know up hundreds of millions sometimes even a billion like we will make profit yeah. venture capitalists like the slice of the pie that you can get for the same amount of money now is going to be way worth it than what you could get later. So venture capitalists, investment firms, you know, they've said, yes, get me involved. Millions of uh, capital purchased and shares purchased in these companies. But uh, it's 2023 and every esports company is still not making money. There's still no profits to be made. Yeah. They, and there's a few reasons for it. Um, firstly, my I'll come to my main reason at the end, but okay. it's a young demographic that watches esports. All right, so merchandising a young demographic is hard. Some sponsors stay away from a young demographic. You know, betting companies, alcohol, things like that. Some sponsors can't get involved in a market with a demographic quite so young. Um, and there's also less disposable income as well that's what i'm saying they have much less disposable income you know you can't go onto tsm or phaser's site and buy a shirt quite so easily when you're 16 17 18 yeah when you're a 33 year old man who loves manchester united (laughs) hey get me a jersey when i go to the next next football match like that's easy as buy not quite so easy in in esports you know and we're talking about generalizations here or, or widely averages there'll be some esports fans that will spend money just like in any any well-respected sports, right? Okay, so let's talk a little bit of numbers. Um, It's predicted to be a $1.6 billion industry, all right, by the end of, or by the beginning of 2024. Okay, so $1.6 billion, all right? The estimate for how much uh, has been invested into the industry is $4.5 billion. So there's there's a giant difference in what has been invested and what has what the industry is predicted to make on any given year, right? Where's all like, that money going? Yeah. Where, where's all the money going? And and this this kind of bubble has broken a little bit. VCs are not so interested, especially when there were talks, you know, late last year, early this year, of a recession looming. It's kind of, you know, people have started to, you know, kind of catch on to, you know, what, what's happening in esports. And it, it's quite counterintuitive. Uh, oh, I didn't get to the main reason why I think why I think there's not much money in esports, you know, why it's not growing money-wise, but viewership-wise it is growing. It's because unlike most traditional sports, there's no subscription platform for watching esports. You go on to the likes of Twitch, which has about an 80% market share. It's a free website, okay? Um, You can watch the latest League of Legends game, World Finals, for free, okay? You can, on YouTube as well, other streaming services, it's completely free. There's no pay-per-view in esports, there's no, like, for a South African, DSTV. There's no sports network that has complete rights to it and can only sell it to specific channel providers. Nothing like that. It's completely free. So that bottom influx of cash is not there, 
all right? And that really does support an industry, you know, if you can think about it. Right now, cash is only coming from venture capitalists and sponsors of teams. You know, that's it's not really enough to keep to keep the bottom pushing up, right? Um, at least that's why I think that's the main point. Okay. So, Devin, how do you know there's, a, there's an esports recession? Well, um, esports organizations and the big ones are having the biggest layoffs that they've ever had. It's reported that Team Liquid, Evil Geniuses, 100 Thieves, um, they've had about 30% uh, employee layoffs in the past uh, nine months, uh, which is really absurd for any industry, if you can think about it. FaZe Clan in particular, which is one of the most, before it went publicly traded, was supposedly valued at a hefty $1 billion. Um, <laughs> After its IPO, which is initial public offering, um, it's now down to... I believe 22 cents oh, no 78 <laughs> cents which is a 75 percent decrease um and it actually has it's a big danger of being delisted um being a delisted company which is i mean it's mad um something that also escalated this esports winter was it's like it had a very big tie to crypto if you think about it it makes sense these are both emerging technology-based um, entertainment and trading forms and investment forms. Um, for example, TSM had signed a $210 million deal with FTX to be rebranded as oh TSM FTX, right? And you can imagine um, when the great crypto crashes happen and FTX flounders under um, Sam, Sam Bankman himself, um, how... You know, any investor gets cold feet and says, oh my word, now there's no crypto backing, right? Or much less than there was before, much less interest in crypto. Um, yeah, and I actually have a quote that, that I quite like. Um, I read this, I actually I couldn't, didn't take down who it's from, but I think, oh, it was from the, uh, the founder of Twitch himself. Okay. Esports has become anti-sexy to VCs who had been burned by the hype and sky-high valuations esports startups enjoyed a few years earlier. And most investors now understand that game publishers are the primary benef beneficiaries in esports. So that kind of is what I'm assuming the outlook is like for investors. Is I described there's a few different players in the esports markets. There's the publishers that make the games, the developers that make the games, the tournament hosts, and then the, the organizations that have the teams. And right now, the predominant feeling is that the publishers in gaming and esports are really where they should be investing their money into, right? So esports itself is viewed, couple, but it doesn't have it doesn't have the backing. Mm, yeah. VC. What what does that stand for? A venture capitalist. Oh, yeah. I see. I see. I yes. See. Yes. Yes. Big men. Or women with big wallets <laughs> who, who want to diversify their portfolios. Yeah. And when yeah. you say publishers, are you talking like the people who make the games themselves? The people who publish the game and distribute them. So we're talking about the likes of EA, CD Projekt Red, who is also a developer and publisher. Um, there's a good few of them, but uh, especially in the COVID times, their, their valuation and also their, their stock prices greatly increased so you know you can't you can't doubt these uh, investment uh, companies and venture capitalists for, for wanting to go there they're 
their profit margins have have been great. They're selling they're selling copies of games like like nothing else. It's it's kind of crazy. Um, so yeah, I mean that's that's where my mind went to when I thought um, investment decisions that have destroyed lives because <laughs> it's destroying mine, man. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm over exaggerating, of course, but like esports is something so close to my heart. Um, to give you another example of how esports was a bad decision to invest in, and I'll say this wholeheartedly: I would not invest in esports if I had a butt ton of cash. Um, maybe, maybe a little bit, but there's a game called Overwatch. Yes. Um, out, brought out by a publisher named Blizzard, and they've done something quite new to esports. Um, they decide to franchise spots in a esports league. So, for example, uh, they made teams like the Philadelphia Fusion and the London Spitfires, and they would then say, "Hey, we have these spots. No one else is allowed to play this esports at such a high level because we franchised it. Only these main teams can even play the sport. Um, who wants to buy in? All right." And there were a lot of buyers. Because this was kind of 2019, 2020. Might have even been as early as 2018, to be honest. Um, And a lot of NBA superstars, including like LeBron, I think Stephen Curry, they all bought teams. They bought franchise spots into the Overwatch League, is what they called it, um, of these various teams. Some MGOs, some esports organizations also bought. um, But it ended up being this massive flop. And... To give you some perspective, these slots were sold for like $60 million, all right? Like each slot was $60 million. But viewership on every game, on every like league game, maybe got like 30000 to 50000 on Twitch, which is insanely low. Yeah. Um, it's not the lowest, I mean, but... For that amount of money. A very successful Twitch just YouTuber or like partner would get more viewers than that. For a $60,000 slot, I mean, it was bad. That's uh, insane. Yeah, there's actually collective bargaining agreement. They're trying to get recuperate some of their money because it's been such a massive flop, this Overwatch League um, run through Blizzard. Um, but that's just one of the many examples of, you know, the buck being not quite worth the bite of the experience. It's just, it's, it's, it's really it, it's shaken the industry. Um, yeah. So that so, is that is the esports winter, the great esports winter that we're we're feeling right now. So part of that is like, this is super fascinating. So these esports companies made these teams, and then like a part of them partnered with cryptocurrencies, and that probably at their height launched in a lot of cash for them. And then yeah. since those one by one fell through, and basically just disappeared into thin air that investment money that was coming from them is now no longer yeah it's it's essentially like if you and your buddy both invested and your buddy you know got out all right didn't get out but was forced to get out you now realize there's a lot less cash in the pool you know like why is my cash all in the pool my buddy's not even here and even though crypto kind of forcefully had a forceful exodus which was kind of ftx um, i'm sure there's a there's a few more cryptocurrency exchanges that are kind of still in the game 
in esports, although I can't name any right now. Maybe Binance is still around. Um, but that's kind of what happened. And it didn't instill a lot of faith in future investors and the current investors and, and a lot of these esports organizations. Yeah, so right I now, imagine. I imagine, yeah, right now I imagine they're all flocking to the publishers. They're all flocking to the money makers and the tournament organizers. And they're saying, here's some money. But the, but the actual organizations that are signing these players, right now they're struggling. Like a big organization, a big European organization, Heroic, put out a tweet that said, we will discontinue our operations until we find, um, I can't remember the exact amount, but it was something between 20 and 50 million in, sure. in investment. Like they said, we just we can't continue. Um, we employ a lot of people, a lot of players, marketing media accommodation travel for players oh i mean there's, there's a lot of costs tons involved, of expenses yeah. many costs involved um they just couldn't afford it i think they did actually fine but i think it was a bit less than what they expected but enough to keep them afloat um yeah the, the bubble's kind of cracking for esports and and i wonder how to go from there um i really wonder if like is this a situation, do you think, where if these esports organizations had kind of opted to try and get sponsors from more like traditional uh, companies and not maybe something that was so risk, with, with so much risk like cryptocurrencies? Or it might, yeah, well, it, it might even they be actually... the case, like if they didn't go for the cryptocurrencies, they just wouldn't have gotten the money anyway. Well, Listen, I don't have access to the books and stuff, but there's a lot of still interested parties. You know, fast food chains get involved, clothing brands like Puma, Nike, Adidas. Like they all, they all love to get involved in esports athletes. There's also quite a market for energy drinks to gamers, so that's that's there. But they've they've been around for a while. But the reality is, like that is their only source of income, right? Um, they don't have deals with stadiums and things like that, like Manchester United do. They don't have the the merchandise uh, sales that that big traditional uh, sports brands do. Most their, their income is entirely through sponsors, right? Yeah. And it has been working, like barely cutting costs because the eyes are growing, but uh, but it's not coming from anywhere else at this point, which is which is crazy. When you think about it, so yeah, like I'm, I'm making it sound like crypto was the only people interested in sponsoring uh, esports organizations, which is not true. Um, there's definitely a few players like uh, hardware companies like Intel and AMD. They love to sponsor peripheral brands, Predator, uh, Asus, you know, laptops, things like that, keyboards, like all of that gets gamers excited. It's been a big uptick in trend for like gaming chairs. Um, that's kind of made its way into the market as well. But it doesn't seem to be enough. Um, and I don't blame it, to be honest. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't know how esports is going to go. But yeah, do you have any takeaways from that, Vincent? Do you have any signs of life for the esports industry? Do I sure think hope so. All... Hmm. I think, hopefully, I mean, esports, there is such a big potential there. Like, I think the same thing like from my point of view i think sports as well as like the rules the main reason why people enjoy it is 
because there's like a story there. Uh, mm. Whether it be conventional sports and sports, like there's a lot of really good stories about players and teams, underdogs, long reigning champs who had to over like mm. overcome odds. And I think esports has a lot of potential to have just as much of an audience as conventional sports. But it's a shame it's been stunted. It has. But, I mean, there's this positive feedback loop between a publisher and a thriving esports community, right? Because that increases the longevity of a game that you publish that brings you more money. You know, I could definitely understand why publishers also, like, want to keep esports going. Um, obviously, tournament organizers wouldn't have a job without it. So there's this positive feedback loop. But there's, yeah, people have just overvalued what organizations are and how much players are being paid it's, it's just as simple as that so there'll probably be a big a bit of a shake-up um but it will get to an equilibrium probably in the next few years i would imagine um but right now it's not looking good at least from an investor standpoint I sure but awesome so. awesome that has been such a fantastic episode i think it's episode five we've explored how how some poor investment decisions have perhaps destroyed some lives through the <laughs> london whale and <laughs> and the uh, esports winter. We even touched on the crypto winter a little bit with uh, SBF, Sam Bankman Freed. Um, but yeah, thank you very much for watching or, or listening. Or whatever, you're, whatever you're viewing this on or listening to it on, we really appreciate it. Um, please make sure to follow, like, leave a comment, whatever you're watching on, and uh, we'll see you in the next episode. This has been Devin and Vince. Vince, and, uh, and we're so happy that you could join us. And we'll see you next time. See ya. Bye-bye.